um, you will not perhaps be aware, but we are in week two of this series that we're doing um, where we're looking at sexuality. I know, shock horror, we're talking about sex in church. Um, But what we're trying to do in this is we're kind of recognizing a couple of things. One, that there's a story kind of that's being told in the world that I don't think is working. And it's a story that basically says um, uh, anything goes, anything goes, pursue whatever you feel, just as long as there's consent and no one's harmed. Although last week we kind of mentioned that the Me Too saga kind of shows up that consent and harm are quite loose concepts. Um, then go for it. And we said that, that that story doesn't seem to be working. Is that story kind of bringing universal happiness or is it bringing people who are continually continuing to search? But on the flip side of that, we said that there's also a story that's been told in the church that's frankly rubbish. And it's a story of just rules. It's a story where people have just been shamed. It's a story where people have kind of been made to feel like God sort of hates them. And what we're trying to do is, is get to actually what is the true story that the scriptures are teaching on this. We're calling it the story the rules forgot. Um, if you missed last week, I'd massively encourage you to kind of go on the website, the podcast, um, Apple or Spotify and have a listen again. Because um, this is kind of like coming in chapter two in a book. It will make some sense, but it will massively help you to read chapter one. Um, but kind of some of what we were saying last week is we were telling this big story, and, and, and this is a story that starts with God. And it starts with the God who loves us, like who, who's our father. He wants us to thrive, and he, and he made us. He created us, so he knows how we're wired. He knows how we're shaped, and he wants us to kind of live into the fullness of that. And within this story, like, sex and sexuality is not like an accident. God wasn't like, gosh, what have I done? I'd better regulate that. Like, it was this intentional thing that he created. It's not something sordid. It's not simply you know, something recreational. It's this good gift, this beautiful gift that God has given us to bless us, that also tells this bigger story. It tells the story of his love for us, and it tells a story that kind of draws us into his love for him. What I want to do today is I want to kind of talk a bit about how we live into that story, like the context that God has given us to kind of channel our sexuality into um, so that we can enjoy it and so that we can kind of thrive and flourish. Um, The the context he gives us are, are good, they're different, they're marriage and singleness. A few precursors. First of all, um, you might think, well, hold on a minute, what about dating? Dating's a funny one because um, if you read the Bible, you'll find no mention of it. That's not because there's an issue with it. It's just because um, arranged marriage was the order of the day in the scriptures. So there was absolutely no need to kind of give any sense of teaching into dating. But kind of in this story, I think the best way to think of it is to think of it almost like a kind of as, as a transitory state um, to marriage or single. It's a bit like kind of unresolved melody. It's something to kind of travel through into these contexts God gives us. Um, the second thing uh, to just say before I kind of get going is, is, is when I talk about marriage today, I'm going to talk about it um, as something between a man and a woman because that's the way that it's sort of talked about in the whole of scriptures. Now, I know there's a bigger question as to kind of can that um, definition be extended? Can it be changed? We're going to talk about that next week. So don't hear anything I say today as speaking into that one way or the other. Um, park those questions for now. The third thing, um, I'm really conscious that as I... As I teach, I'm, I'm teaching something of a kind of um, an ideal. I, I'm not necessarily teaching something that's always a lived reality. Um, what, what I teach might not be your story at the moment. Um, and what I want to say is I kind of want to reiterate something I said last week, and that's this, that this is a redemptive story. 
It's not a story of sorted people and people are in a mess. It's a story of people are in a mess and people are in a mess, kind of journeying with Jesus like um, into in kind of increasing levels of wholeness and flourishing. And so if there's anything that I say today that, that brings about a dissonance for you and kind of your life or your past experience, um, I just really would invite you, don't see that as a moment of shame and judgment. That's not how God's looking at it. Um, see it as a moment of invitation. And it might be an invitation to one of two things. It might be an invitation to wrestle with him, to wrestle with God in the scriptures and be like, is this, like we said last week, God loves us. He wants what's best for us. Is this what's best for me? Really? You sure? I don't get this. Like have that wrestle with him. That wrestle might take years. It might take months. It might take days. That is okay. That is a valid part of the journey. You don't need to sort yourself out one way or the other. Know what you think tomorrow. Um, uh, The second way you might want to see it as an invitation, it might be an invitation to take the next step on the journey. But if we take the next step on the journey, we're not arriving, we're simply taking the next step. You're, you know, all of us are simply only ever taking next steps. None of us have arrived. We're all in process. We want to be a church that's okay with messiness, that's okay with uncertainty, that's okay with journey, that's okay with being in process. And so see those moments not as moments of judgment, um, but as moments of invitation. Okay, marriage and singleness. As I put there, two ways of life that God gives us for fulfilling our sexuality. We're going to start with marriage, we'll then do singleness. I want to read a scripture. This is uh, Genesis. So this is the cre- like part of the creation story. Um, whatever you think about the creation story, it's, it's a story of, like, of God's heart for the world. You, know, you can have an argument about whether God created the world to evolve or whether he created it uh, um, in seven days. Those questions are irrelevant for now because the truth of what is being taught here stands true either way. It says this. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, quickly, where it says the word helper, it doesn't kind of mean like little assistant or kind of subordinate. It's a word that's actually used of God in the scriptures. It means like co-worker, partner. It's not a kind of lesser word. It's not a kind of word of um, hierarchy. Um, Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed at the place of flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Again, where it says rib, it's not the greatest translation. The word's actually used to talk of like the side of a building elsewhere in Scripture. It's, it, it's better in many ways to think of it as side. Some people think of it, it's almost like, um, and this is a, a great metaphor, right? Um, that it's almost like God cut the man in two. And so what's being said here is not kind of like, again, subordination. It, it's, it's a statement of equality. What it's saying is that the, the, the woman is made of the same stuff. There's a difference She's not the man, right? Um, But she's made of the same stuff. It's a statement of equality, not anything else. Hence, we get the next line, because the man says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's a recognition. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay, loads here. We're going to whistle through a lot of it. Um, what do we see? What, what we see at the heart is we see that marriage here is a gift. 
It's a gift. It's a gift to kind of all society, and it's a gift to those who are in it. Um, why is that? First off, marriage is, is seen kind of in this text as the kind of solution to the problem of aloneness in the world. It's, it's, it's given kind of as a place for um, a context for children to be born and raised. So what we see, we see Adam, and at the beginning it says Adam is alone, and that that's a problem. Why? Two reasons. One, because God has created us to exist in community. He's not created us to exist by ourselves. He's created us to exist in interrelation with one another. The second reason it's a problem, though, is because God has given humans a job to do. The previous chapter kind of outlines this. It's, there's this um, great command that God gives. We talked about last week. The first command in Scripture is a command to have sex. Um, it's be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Um, rule over the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the creatures on the land. And, and what that kind of is about is it's this, this job that God gives us to make something of this world, to create things, to build society, to come up with clever technologies and inventions and to build culture and you know, write beautiful pieces of music and make amazing art. Um, this is the job that God has given us as humans to do. And there's a problem because a co-worker is needed which is why it says no suitable helper was found. There's an issue here. Um, in other words, the job isn't realizable by one person alone, but also the job is not realizable by men alone. This is kind of what it's saying. And so God gives Adam a suitable helper, this co-worker, a woman, one who is like him but different from him. Um, and, and what it's kind of saying is that men and women are both needed to do God's work in the world. And it then kind of moves on to kind of um, begin to talk about marriage. Why does it talk about marriage? It, it talks about that because marriage is kind of positioned here in the story as the solution to continuing to solve the problem of aloneness in the world through being the context that God gives us for having kids, procreation, in other words. Um, like without childbearing, aloneness returns, and there's no, no means to kind of be, uh, be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. And so we see here that kind of God is giving marriage as, as, a, as a gift in this sense. And it's really important that we, we, un, we don't misunderstand this. It's not saying that you're alone unless you're married. It's saying that marriage solves the problem of aloneness in the world through being a, a, the context where children are able to be born, therefore the human race, you know, community forms, the human race doesn't end. A um, couple of quick things. What's being said here is that marriage is ordered towards procreation. It's not saying that marriage is necessarily procreative. In other words, a marriage is fully a marriage without um, like having children. It might be by choice um, or by tragic circumstance that you know, that's not able to happen for some reason. But it's not saying that that marriage is any less of a marriage. It's just saying that marriage as a thing is kind of positioned for procreation, even if something kind of inhibits that. Um, inevitably, you can have kids outside of the context of marriage, people might have noticed, but kind of what, what's being kind of said here is that this is the context that like, God is giving us as a gift for that to kind of best flourish. And, and we kind of see that in the other ways that marriage is a gift. So we're going to go on to those. So marriage is a solution to the problem of aloneness in the world through being a place for children to be born. Um, it's also the place that gives a kind of context for the formation of a new family unit. We see this kind of one flesh bond being formed, this new kind of kinship unit. 
it, it does two things. Like, it creates, you know, having a new family unit creates a secure and stable environment for kids to be born and raised. But what it also does is it focuses those in it on other people, beyond themselves. Like, we, we have a tendency to focus on ourselves. And marriage, singleness does this too, by the way, but it does it differently, like, gives a way for God to kind of focus us beyond ourselves on others. So it's the formation of a new family unit. Um, it's lifelong. Um, it's, 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 it's this one flesh bond. Jesus talks about it. He, he echoes this, this passage later. Paul also quotes it. We'll get onto that. Um, and he says, you know, form one flesh. What God has put together, let no man separate. It's meant to be this lifelong thing, this kind of gift that brings stability to both the couple and the kind of wider family. And also, it's, um, it's this place of um, monogamy. Like, it's, it's one man and one woman. It's not one man and five women or six women. Or, you know, it's one man and one woman. And it's this place, therefore, of security. And that benefits both the couple, but interestingly, it also benefits society. Um, Louise Perry, in her recent book, um, looks at the research, and, and she says that actually, um, in societies where monogamy is kind of practiced, it actually makes society richer. Um, it lowers rates of child abuse and domestic violence because um, apparently conflict between multiple wives helps increase those levels. Um, it lowers birth and crime rates. It's not just this thing that kind of benefits those in the marriage. It's something that benefits society as a whole. It's a gift. Lastly, it's a gift because it's seen here as the context for sexual union. So like, one flesh means more than this, but it means sexual union. And so what scripture kind of envisages is that marriage is, is the, not, not simply a, but the context for sex. Now, this is where everyone starts rolling their eyes because it's where we kind of, if we've grown up in church, recall that desperately awkward talk that someone had with us about no sex before marriage and it was this rule that was taught and then we didn't manage to do it and we felt awful about ourselves and maybe we're not in that camp but we think, goodness me, this is like, Either the Victorians or the weirdos are coming in, because this is weird. Um, it's been taught as a rule. We've missed the story. What's the story? So last week, we, we, we talked about some of the story that the Bible tells of, of, of what it means to be sexual. And one of the things we said is, we said it's a story of what it means to be human. And, and that part of the story, what it says is that we are embodied souls. To put that another way, it's not that the real will lives within this casing that is my body. My body, in the kind of view of the scriptures, is the real you. You can't separate the real will from Will's body. Like, they are kind of one and the same. And so, if my body is me, what I do with my body is what I do with me and what I do to me. So, if my body's the real me, then sex is more than simply a uniting of two bodies. It's a uniting of two persons. Interestingly, we know this biologically. When two people have sex, um, they release hormones. For men, it's vasopressin. For women, it's oxytocin. Oxytocin and vasopressin are what's known as the bonding hormones. They're hormones that kind of bond people to one another. Like oxytocin is the same hormone for women that's released when they um, breastfeed a child. It's designed to kind of bond two people together. Sex has this unifying effect. It's the uniting of two people. And so essentially, what the story is kind of doing here, what it's telling is it's saying, don't do something with your body that you're not able or willing to do with the whole of your life or the whole of your person. Why? Because you, you, you kind of put yourself in a contradiction within yourself. If your body is you, 
and you're kind of giving yourself fully over to something, you're uniting, but then you're also not uniting, that brings a kind of contradiction. But also, if you're uniting two things, and they're being united, but it's temporary, then you need to break that apart. And we know that when you break two things apart, like when you stick two pieces of paper together, you know, they don't separate easily. It's, you know, it, it can be painful, it can be difficult. And so what God does is he gives us marriage as a gift, not as a kind of way of like, I don't know, like testing us or being weird or um, harsh, but he gives it as a gift because he gives it as this context where we can be united in every way, bodily and with the whole of ourself, um, for life. It's a gift. Really important. If this isn't your story, what I want to say, because I think there's been so much garbage that's been taught over the years on this, like God doesn't hate you, you're not permanently damaged, you're not a failure. Like, he, he loves you. Like, this is a redemptive story. There's not a moment, this isn't a kind of shame moment. It's a story of a God who is alongside us. He's not standing over us, like, tutting, but standing beside us, holding us, picking us up, leading us on, like, patiently. And you know what? We stumble, we fall. It's okay. We carry on the journey with Jesus. So marriage is a gift. It's this lifelong, monogamous context for having children that God gives to us to bless us, to help us flourish, and to bless wider society. But marriage isn't just a gift. And I spoke a bit about this last week. We're going to go into a bit more. This is the stuff we miss. Because marriage isn't just a gift. Marriage is also a sign. I want to read um, some of what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Again, he quotes this passage from Genesis here. So he says this, In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself. Again, you kind of get the body, person, one thing coming out here. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. I don't know if you've read this passage before. It's, it's a bit weird, because it's this passage where Paul's talking about marriage, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of tracking with you. You know, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Yeah, good with that. And then at the end of it, he, kind of, he says, oh, I'm not really talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And we all go, what? What are you on about? And then we think, oh, maybe he's being metaphorical. But, we, but he's, he's not. He's saying, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And it's what I said last week. It's that it's not so much that like, God was one day kind of thinking, oh, it'd be really great to have a bit of a metaphor to talk about my relationship with my people, my heart, my intent for my people. That looks good. It's that actually God made us as sexual beings. He, he created and gave us marriage to be a metaphor, to speak of his love for us. Like marriage is a sign. You know, this is kind of almost the ultimate purpose of marriage. It's this living symbol of Christ and the church, of like Jesus' relationship with us as his people, his heart for us as his people. Like, I love the way um, Ed Shaw in his book, um, Purposeful Sexuality, puts it. He says it's almost like marriage is like a trailer to a film. Like, we've all seen film trailers, right? And, and you watch a film trailer because it gets you excited about the real event. It points to the main film, but you don't watch a trailer and then think, great, done job. You watch a trailer and you then want to watch the movie, but the movie is the main event. And, and kind of this is what's 
going on here. It's almost that marriage is like a, a, a trailer of eternity. It's a glimpse of what's to come. It's a glimpse of what's promised for us all to see. Like God doesn't just teach us theological concepts. He gives us experiential, tangible, physical ways of like knowing them and living them and experiencing them now um, looking forward. And so whether we are in a marriage or whether we're viewing marriage from the outside in, it's, it's designed as this trailer of God's heart for us, of his relationship for us. Um, you know, we see in marriage kind of a lived glimpse of God's passion and desire for us in the sexual desire that we have for kind of one another. In the lifelong monogamy of marriage, we see that God's like utter commitment to us no matter the cost. You know, when you see that really like amazing sort of 99-year-old couple who've been married for more years than, you know, you can even comprehend, and you think, oh gosh, that's so lovely. Like, you see this amazing sign, this symbol, this like walking, talking embodiment of God's heart towards us. He's not going to give up on us. He's not going to turn away from us when stuff gets hard. He's in it no matter what. It's lifelong. He's committed to us. He's not going to be like, oh, not working. Like, I'm going to try something else. Like, he's committed to us. Like in, in childbearing, we see that knowing Jesus brings life. It's this life-bringing thing. In sexual union, we see and experience kind of a glimpse of the intimacy, the closeness that Jesus desires with us. In the climax of sexual union, we see and experience a glimpse of the pleasure and the ecstasy that it will be to be united with Jesus perfectly forever. Like marriage is a blessing for now, but it's so much more than that because it's meant to pull us beyond it. It's a sign. So marriage is a sign, marriage is a gift. What about singleness? Um, singleness is an interesting thing. I don't know if you think about this often enough, but every single one of us has been, um, and many of us, even if we're not right now, will again be single. Um, that's just life. Um, I think a lot of the chat in church on singleness is, is, is garbage. Um, so I think often when singleness is kind of talked about in kind of conversations, it, it, it's almost perceived as this kind of like lesser intermediary state on the route to marriage. Um, you know, by contrast, marriage is seen as this like sensational and fulfilling thing. And singleness, by contrast, is almost talked about as like missing out on marriage. You know, if you're under the age of 40, people will probably come and ask you whether you've found anyone yet, because the, the implication, the assumption is, well, obviously, that's where life should be heading. By contrast, if you're over 40, people might have stopped asking you because they just feel a bit sorry, because they think, oh, gosh, well, obviously, oh, that's a shame that's not worked out for you. You know, you're, you're missing out on something. Because the implication is that if you're not having sex, if, you're not, if you haven't got a romantic relationship, if you're not married, you can't possibly be fulfilled, and you're missing out on life. That's not the Jesus story. That's rubbish. That's the, that's the story of culture. The story of, of Jesus is that singleness is a blessing. Um, I want to read some of 1 Corinthians 7. Paul's talking about singleness here. I've cut swaves out because um, we'll be here till tomorrow otherwise. So go read it at home. Um, so if you wonder why it jumps a bit, that's why. Paul says this. I wish that all of you were as I am. He's talking about himself as a single person. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is, in other words, single um, or married. 
Are you, pledged to be a, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Everyone says amen. Um, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. So then, he who marries a virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Like, again, we see here that singleness is a gift. Like, really? It's a gift? Like, Paul in this, this passage, like, goes... I would say, like, over the top in some ways to make the point strongly that, like, singleness is this amazing thing. You know, his ending words are, but he who does not marry her does better. Like, none of us think like that. We think the opposite. But Paul's saying that because he's trying to kind of, like, be subversive. He's kind of trying to, like, rebalance the nonsense and say, no, 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 you're, you're missing it. Singleness is this incredible thing. It's this fulfilling thing. It's this gift that God gives us. And remember, this, is, this, is, this isn't like me talking here. This is Paul. This is a single guy. And, and this is the Paul who's like in prison saying he's having a jolly time and is full of joy. Like, you know, like, it's someone who goes through unbelievable levels of suffering and was single and yet seems to be unbelievably content, unbelievably fulfilled. But more than that, we believe in a saviour who is Jesus. And we believe about Jesus that he was 100% human, as human as I am, as human as you were. And we believe that he was the most human human being that has ever been and ever will be. Like He was completely 100% fulfilled. And yet Jesus was single. He didn't have a romantic relationship. He didn't have sex. Jesus was single, and yet he was completely fulfilled. And if Jesus was completely fulfilled, that must mean this, that he was completely fulfilled sexually. And I think here's the thing we miss. Singleness is a way to fulfill your sexuality. Like, sexuality is not something that's wasted or kind of frustrated within singleness. Because sexuality ultimately isn't fulfilled by having sex or having a romantic relationship. Ultimately, it's pointing to something more than that. It's pointing to our need for God. It's pointing to our need of in, uh, for intimate relationship with one another. Uh, you know, we are fulfilled in those things, in Jesus and in community. Um, Singleness is a gift because it's a way to fulfill your sexuality. Um, and and it, it, it does this, and it's a gift because it, it pulls us powerfully into Jesus. Like Paul says here about you know, um, single people, they're concerned about the Lord's affairs. They haven't got the distraction of kind of marriage. You know, in other words, in kind of not having sex and not having the distraction of marriage, your sexuality draws you more powerfully into Jesus. And, and in the process of that, reminds all of us, married alike, that sex isn't the thing that we need for fulfillment. It stops us from putting too much on marriage and thinking that that's the solution. Um, secondly, singleness pulls us into intimate friendships and, again, teaches the rest of us about the importance of it in the process. The lies that we need sex and romance, the truth is that we need intimacy. We need intimacy. The problem is we've conflated the two as being synonymous. 
Um, we have a created need for intimacy. We don't have a created need for sex or romance. Like all of us need intimate friendships. And I would say married people need intimate friendships, and that's got to go beyond your spouse. We put too much weight on the institution of marriage by looking at it to be the sole thing that's going to bring us intimate friendship. Like we're created for community. That, that's, that's like multiple people. Um, but here's the thing. I think in our culture, it's really hard to form intimate friendships. It's really hard to form intimate friendships. You know, in contrast to, you know, if you go to other parts of the world, they, they're very communal. You know, you go to Africa, loads of people living together in the same household. It's very communal society. But our society operates in quite an atomized, kind of individualistic, transient way where we pick stuff up, we put it down. Um, and where the family unit is a bit of a closed shop, We'll let people in, but only so far, and then it gets a bit difficult and the drawbridge goes up. Um, and, and I think all of that kind of just serves to kind of increase loneliness. But it's our culture, not singleness itself, that makes singleness a harder thing. Um, and, and we need to kind of fight back. Like, the church needs to be the place, and I haven't got time to kind of dig into this fully today, but it needs to be the place where we can celebrate, encourage, and enable the pursuit of intimate friendship and community between singles and singles, singles and married. Um, like, I think we find it hard, though, to conceive of the idea that two people can be in intimate friendship without sex or kind of romance coming to be present. We learn from quite an early age to be suspicious of, of, of intimacy, uh, and wary of it because there's that kind of uh, assertion that it might lead to sexual intimacy. Like in school, kids get shamed. You know, if two guys have a sort of friendship, someone probably at some point, and it's really, it seems really close, might well have come up to them and said, oh, you're gay. You know, and this homophobic slur is kind of directed that kind of shames intimacy by two, f between two people. Like, and, and, and we kind of do that in the church too. Like if you've got two people who are... I don't know, um, like, say two guys in their 60s, they've lived together for 40 years. Tongues whack. What the heck's that about? Like, why do we do that? But we, we sit there and we say, oh, you know, I, I, I've always wondered. You know, I, I do, do wonder if. And, you know, tongues wagging. Uh, this kind of, like, assumption that two people can't possibly have a wonderfully intimate friendship without something more going on. Where's that come from? Because it's not come from Jesus. It's not come from the scriptures. And we've got to reclaim it. We've got to cheer on and celebrate and encourage and enable intimate friendship to flourish in our communities. Um, and, and what I love about single people is that they're actually often better at doing that than us married. They've got a lot to teach us, and we need to kind of look to them to teach us. Singleness is a gift not just to those in it, it's a, it's a gift to all of us. Lastly, singleness is a gift of opportunity. Um, this is um, Wes Hill. Wes Hill's a, a single um, a gay Christian. He writes this. He says, Celibacy is not about a heroic feat of willpower. It's about giving up one way of expressing love in order to be able to love widely, indiscriminately, in order to become a spouse, in order to love a community. It's about giving up the possibility of children in order to become a spiritual father or mother in the family called church. It's about being a little less entangled in the life of the world in order to be a little more free to celebrate the coming kingdom of God in which none of us will be married and all of us will be spiritual friends with everyone else in the new creation God will usher in.
Like, it's a gift of opportunity. Like in being free from kind of some of the distractions and pulls of marriage that you've got to attend to, it enables you to focus on other things that matter and bring blessing. You know, it can lead to a deeper walk with Jesus. It can free you to be a blessing to many more people than you would be able to be if you were married. Um, and blessing others is something that blesses us. Singleness is a gift. But, and again, we miss this. Singleness is also a sign. Singleness is also a sign. Singleness is a sign as well of our eternal hope. The Christian hope is a new creation. It's of God coming to fix this world and we get to live with him in it. Um, But the new creation state is one of being single, unmarried, and not having sex. And I think when we talk about that, we often are quite fearful of it. We think, gosh, that doesn't sound very good. I'm told it's good, but it doesn't sound very good. It sounds a bit inadequate. It sounds a bit rubbish. It it doesn't sound very good because we won't have this amazing thing of marriage and sex to enjoy. But we forget. We forget that the very fact that marriage and sex is this, like, thing that we do enjoy in this life is a sign that we're going to really enjoy the new creation because it's the trailer. It's the trailer. Like, I, you know, I went to see, I said I went to see, I watched it on my telly, Top Gun Mavericks recently. It had taken a long time to go out, so I'd watched the trailers many times. I was very excited for it. Like, in the middle of that movie, I didn't think, you know what, I'm going to turn this off and put the trailer back on because that would be insane. Like, I'm, you know, I'm in the real event. I'm in the thing the trailer's been pointing towards. The trailer's, and I've forgotten it existed when I'm watching the movie because I'm experiencing the real thing. I'm experiencing the thing that the trailer has been pointing towards. And singleness is a sign because it lives that out now. It's a living sign that we can see that actually we can be completely fulfilled without having sex and romance. Like that the new creation life is going to be a good one. We can see it now because we can be fulfilled in the the kind of context that God gives us a singleness right now. Marriage and singleness, what are they? They're both gifts. They point us to Jesus. They point us to the world to come. They're both things that kind of God uses to bless us. They're signs and they're gifts. They both embrace sexual desire. One uses it to kind of show us the ecstasy and permanence of union with Jesus. The other one uses it to kind of show us that our completeness is in him and not in sex or marriage. I said this last week. The quest for sexual fulfillment ultimately is is, is the search for Jesus. The problem in our world is that we stop at sex. We stop at the gifts and we miss the fact that they're signs. We miss the fact that they're pointing beyond themselves to what's coming. We miss the fact that they're trailers, and whether or not you get to watch the trailer, whether or not you fully enjoy the trailer is an irrelevance when the movie is coming out. And so what do we do? I think, I think we need to lean into the bigger story here. Like When you see from the outside or experience marriage from the inside, let it bless you, let it be a gift to you, but, but let it draw you beyond that. Let it remind you of Jesus' commitment to you, his love and his passion for you, your desire to be united with him, the ecstasy it will be to be united with him forever. Like when you see from the outside or experience singleness from the inside, let it remind you that Jesus is all we truly need. Let it remind you of the importance of friendship, of the world that is coming, where we will be totally fulfilled in Jesus and not be married. And that won't be a bad thing, but something of complete fulfillment. Lean into the story. Lean into the channels he gives you for it and let him pull you deeper and deeper into his ways of love because at the heart of it, that's the story. 
It's a story of a God who loves you more than you can ever imagine and wants to bless you. I'm going to pray. Jesus, I just want to pray for us that you would help us, every single one of us, whatever it looks like for us, Lord, just take the next step on that journey with you to leaning into your big story of love. And Lord, where there is shame, where there is judgment that we're laboring under, I just pray that you would break that off and throw it in the dustbin. That you would remind us afresh this morning of your love for us now. Let's just have a minute before we move on to just sit with Jesus and allow him to speak his love over us and draw close to us by his presence.